Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Over the course of 13 feature films, he examined a diverse range of topics and themes, from the glories and dangers of technology... I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. ...to the moral conflicts inherent in war. Whose side do you want, son? Our side, sir. How about getting with the program? He investigated the duality of man with unblinking honesty... (laughs) ...with a fierce intelligence... He embraced the ambiguous, revealing deeper layers of truth with every viewing of his work. You've always been the caretaker. His films were of their time, ahead of their time, and timeless. I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair mussed, but I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed, tops. In this series, we will examine the works of Stanley Kubrick, works that will continue to challenge, fascinate, and exhilarate audiences for as long as there are movies. This is the Kubrick series. Episode 3, A Bit of the Ultraviolence. I'm Dr. Taylor. I haven't seen you before. And you're a psychiatrist. Psychiatrist? Do I need one? I mean, it was um, played everywhere else in the world, okay, and people um, looked upon it, you know, as, as a serious and um, you know creative piece of filmmaking. But it was only over here that um, you know the shit hit the fan. He's so appealing in some ways, but he's also very deceptive, and we have to try to figure out where we stand towards such a character. A lot of critics seem to say that, in some ways, what what Alex does is almost excusable, because at least he's alive. I would say that makes me very uncomfortable. I think Alex probably would have ended up as a, a highly successful guy, simply because he had this sort of sense of this love of life. By the early 70s, The world had been rocked by unspeakable waves of violence, from the bloodshed in Southeast Asia to the Manson-led savagery in the Hollywood Hills. Reflecting the grim tone of the times, the new cinema explored this chaos like never before in widely acclaimed yet profoundly controversial films like Bonnie and Clyde, The Wild Bunch, and Straw Dogs. I care. This is where I live. I will not allow violence against this house. The most notorious of the films from this period was A Clockwork Orange. What did you do that for? For being a bastard with no manners. Not a duke of an idea how to comport yourself public-wise, oh my brother. 
At the time of its release, A Clockwork Orange was reputed to have inspired copycat acts of violence, and related threats against Kubrick and his family led him to pull his film from UK theaters, an unprecedented, self-imposed ban that would remain for the next 27 years until his death. Doobie-doo. A bit tired, maybe. That's not the same, all. Bedways is right ways now. So best we go home ways and get a bit of spatchka. Right, right? Right, right. Right, right. But before the protests, the threats, the self-imposed ban, or the reports of copycat violence, A Clockwork Orange began its life as a novella by author Anthony Burgess. Released in 1962, Burgess's book was itself born out of an act of violence and the suffocating menace of impending death. In the late 50s, Burgess was diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor and told he had a year left to live. Wanting to leave behind some sort of legacy that would reap financial rewards for his wife, Burgess feverishly wrote five novels within that year. One of those novels was The Clockwork Orange, a work that was informed in some part by a brutal gang attack perpetrated upon his first wife. Set in the near future in England, A Clockwork Orange tells the story of a group of juvenile delinquents led by Alex, a murderous thug and rapist who nevertheless possesses a sharp wit, a fierce intelligence, a deep sense of culture, and a soul-stirring affection for the music of Beethoven. Can you spare some cutter, me brothers? Go on, do me in your bastard cowards. We don't want to live anyway. Not in a stinking water like this. Oh? And what's so stinking about it? When Alex is left injured at the scene of a crime by his cohorts, he is apprehended by the authorities and recruited as an ideal candidate for a revolutionary new behavior modification treatment called the Ludovico Technique. Forced to watch unspeakable acts of filmed violence under the influence of nausea-inducing drugs, Alex is conditioned to collapse in paralyzing sickness any time he even considers committing a lewd or violent act. Feeling satisfied that they have cured him of his malevolent tendencies, the government unleashes Alex back onto the world. And in a series of ironic circumstances, he unsuccessfully attempts suicide by jumping out of a high-story window. Under the glare of increasing negative publicity for stripping a man of his free will, the government strikes a deal with Alex to restore public favor, by offering him high-paying employment and a comfortable future. I've suffered the tortures of the damned, sir. Tortures of the damned. I can tell you with all sincerity that I and the government of which I'm a member are deeply sorry about this, my boy. Deeply sorry. We tried to help you. 
We followed recommendations which were made to us that turned out to be wrong. An inquiry will place the responsibility where it belongs. We want you to regard us as friends. Accepting their deal, Alex realizes the fall from his suicide attempt has cured him of his condition, and he is once again free to explore his most devious desires. A final chapter of the book, long deleted in U.S. publications, portrayed Alex as completely reformed, a man who had seen the era of his ways through the natural maturation into adulthood. Barring this final chapter, which Kubrick found inauthentic to the rest of the work, A Clockwork Orange painted a vivid portrait of themes that had long obsessed him, mainly the notion of man's inhumanity to man, his capacity for both savagery and grace, and the corrosive manipulation of powerful institutions. Actor, Malcolm McDowell. The brilliance of the script, which is Burgess, Anthony Mm -hmm. Burgess's genius book, is that we make him this, that, and the other, and then we have the state coming in to save the day. But, of course, we don't need... I mean, you know, is it right that the state should have the power you know, over us to make us into automatons. Right, right. You know, and so it becomes really a political issue. And what the film really, the bottom line is, the film is about the freedom of man to choose, whether it's to be a good person or a bad person. But you have to have that choice. And we can't have, you know, our government making the choice for us. Following his work on the groundbreaking 2001, A Space Odyssey, Kubrick had hoped to realize his epic vision of the life of Napoleon. But this project fell through, and his attention was turned to A Clockwork Orange by a longtime friend and previous collaborator. Author of Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, an examination of the making of the film and its ongoing legacy, Stuart Y. McDougall. The novel was introduced to him by Terry Southern. Uh, Terry Southern was a writer who was involved uh, in Dr. Strangelove, and really, I think it was the writer, Southern has a very black sense of humor, and Southern was the one who helped transform the novel Red Alert, which is a very sort of straightforward novel into something as bizarre as Dr. Strangelove. And he had uh, given a copy of A Clockwork Orange to Kubrick um, about the time of 2001. And uh, you may have known Kubrick was wanting to do a movie on Napoleon after, after 2001. And he did extensive research on Napoleon. You know, he amassed these huge archives of notes about Napoleon. And the project fell through, and he was looking for something else to do, and uh, picked up a Clockwork Orange, and uh, um, immediately uh, optioned the novel, which uh, Southern had actually optioned early on for a thousand dollars, and then Southern couldn't keep hold keep a, a hold of the option, um, didn't have the money to keep renewing it, so it went to someone else, uh, who ended up selling it to uh, Kubrick for two hundred thousand, uh, the rights on the novel. And he was taken with it right away. The, the, the language, the structure, the story, 
uh, all appealed to him enormously. Yeah. So he uh, actually asked uh, Burgess to do a script, and Burgess did, and he didn't like the script, so he did it himself, pretty much, working very closely from the novel. What is most distinctive about Burgess's novel is its wholly invented language, which Burgess called NADSAT. The language is a combination of Russian, contorted English, and sing-song slang. One thing I could never stand was to see a filthy, dirty old drunkie howling away at the filthy songs of his fathers and going blurp, blurp in between. The novel is told in, a, in an invented language that doesn't exist anywhere outside the covers of Anthony Burgess's novel. Burgess has to teach his readers how to read this language in the course of the novel. Yeah. And it's something he does very effectively. And so Kubrick has to do the same thing in the movie. Probably the most important change um, and one of the most controversial is in the um, the choice of the American edition rather than the British edition of the novel. He mm-hmm. was given the American edition, which has only 20 chapters. Uh, the British edition has 21 chapters. You know, leaving out that chapter of Reformation changes the novel and changes the whole view of the work rather considerably. That's one thing. Another thing is he tried to um, lighten up, if that's the right word, the violence somewhat, by making the objects of the violence not as uh, vulnerable as they are in the novel. Mm. You know, in the novel, it's a very young girl who's getting raped on stage, for example. Um, it's an old, old man coming back from the library who's attacked at the beginning of the, of the novel. Um, the cat woman is a much older woman in the novel. So he's made some changes in the, the objects of the violence um, with an eye to making it more palatable, I think. The Durango 95 purred away real horror show. A nice, warm, vibrating feeling all through your gutty woods. Soon it was trees and dark, my brothers, with real country dark. From the moment he began reading A Clockwork Orange, Kubrick knew he wanted actor Malcolm McDowell to play the vibrant and mischievous Alex, handed the opportunity to play a career-defining character of great size and color. McDowell reflected on one of the all-time great villainous grotesques for inspiration. The thought of Olivier playing Richard III and seeing the film of it when I was a schoolboy Mm. left an indelible impression on me of pure delightful evil as a person that was so evil and so relished it that you just loved it (laughs) and you had to go along with it even though he murdered these two young princes in the tower you didn't care you still loved richard the third author stuart y mcdougall he'd seen mcdowell in if and was very impressed and thought he'd be perfect for the part um, others had been considered for the part when the, when the property was still optioned. Um, at one point, the Rolling Stones were thought as a possible group of droogs for the movie version of the yeah. novel. Yes, I read that. Yes, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, that would, have been, that would have been a fascinating movie. But, <laughs> but uh, I think McDowell is extraordinary. And it's, you know, he has is, he is subsequently said what an important part it was for him. And it's one of those roles that... Uh, marks an actor for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm, and there aren't mm-hmm. many such roles. I mean, I think of um, 
Anthony Perkins in Psycho would be another example, but there aren't many such roles that you just identify forever with that actor and um, that influence everything else that actor plays for the rest of his life. The only thing was, I'll tell you the truth, was I was terrified before the first day shooting, and I didn't know how to play the part. You know, we'd been talking about it for five months, and suddenly, you know, I had to do it. In the next few days, I'd be called upon, and, and you know, because Kubrick never said a word about the part, he said a word about everything else, and I remember asking him something about the character, and he goes, well, I'm not Rada. That's why I, that's why I hired you. I'm, I'm walked away. <laughs> So I went to my friend Lindsay Anderson, mm -hmm. and I, I I said, Lindsay, we read the script with you, and you know I'd done If with Lindsay, and that's why Stanley cast me because of the part I played in If. Mm -hmm. And um, Lindsay read the script, and he's drumming and ahhing, going, Oh God, thank God I don't have to make this. And saying, I know, I said, All right, but but how am I going to play it, Lindsay? Now he was a Lindsay was a great great director you know and he was a an extraordinary man and, and uh, he was a fantastic theater director as well as being a great film director and he he looked at me and he just said well there is a shot of you in if when you open the doors of the gymnasium when you're going in to be beaten by the prefects and they and you look at them there's a close-up of you you're looking at them and you smile mm. he goes that's that's how you play this part. It, I suddenly went, oh, my God, you're right. Now, that's a genius piece of direction. He gave me the image. I'd already done the image. I knew the smile was kind of a fuck you smile because I was, I was defiant. Mm -hmm. So I knew the smile. I knew the insolence of it. And so the first day of shooting, I remembered it. And then I... Never remembered it again. I, then I was in it. It got me through the first day. I was on. The role of Alex proved to be one of the most challenging and physically demanding of McDowell's career. McDowell suffered through broken ribs, having his head dunked in soiled water for agonizing minutes at a time, and having his eyelids pried open while dressed in a straitjacket. All the while, he maintained his character's sense of wild abandon. In spite of these challenges, and Kubrick's occasional lack of sensitivity, McDowell maintained a tremendous respect for the filmmaker. Yeah, he was very smart on what, you know, um, people wanted and stuff like that. And he was very calculating about it. He was very smart. He was a good producer. So he wanted to make a small-budget film after 2001, to show people that he could, you know, make a small-budget film as well as a big-budget film that ran kind of out of control. You know, because nobody knew how much all these special effects would cost. You know, this was before computerized graphics and all that stuff. Thank mm -hmm. God, actually, because the effects in 2001 are, are far superior to most of these computer-generated things, I think. I think I so mean, too. they're amazing because they're they're models. I mean, they're amazing. So he the budget for Clockwork was at two million dollars. So that that's what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, minute. It was minute compared yeah. to what he'd just done. So um, 
you know, and, and even though it was a small budget, we still shot, I think, for eight months. Mm. That was the shooting schedule. That was rather long. <laughs> God almighty, I think they managed to shoot Lawrence of Arabia, most of it, in eight months. Of course, he was uh, completely and utterly obsessive. He wasn't quite as nutty when I worked with him. I don't remember. I mean, I remember doing uh, lots of takes in one scene only. Um, you know, if it got to 20 takes, that was very rare. Uh, you know, we usually got it early. Mm. Um, but um, I remember one, uh, because it was a very difficult track shot, we actually got to 50. And I said to him, do you mind going to 1A? I can't bear to hear take 50. And he went, no. He would never even turn the camera over unless there was something that he deemed that was magical to shoot. Right. And, you know, it took a lot of rehearsal, a lot of time working it out. And once it was worked out, he then, he'd go in and figure out where to put the camera. And this is the interesting thing. He wouldn't have, you know, one of these cartoon things where all the shots are made up, which I think are, I hate that. I hate mm -hmm. that. But, of course, the money people insist on that from every director. They insist on it. But that takes all spontaneity. So if something happens on the set, you want to go with that. You don't want to be stuck with your, you know, your little cartoon things. It is often said that Kubrick was a master manipulator, the ultimate puppet master who controlled every last detail of a film set and an actor's performance. But anyone who actually worked with the man disagrees with this statement. In fact, Kubrick provided the ultimate freedom to explore, not defining the scene prior to shooting, but allowing it to build organically and from the moment. Perhaps the most striking example of the fruits of this process lies in A Clockwork Orange and one of the most notorious scenes in film history. I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feel, and I'm happy again. I'm laughing at clouds so dark up above. The sun's in my heart, and I'm ready for love. Let's Alex and his droogs enter the apartment of an old man and his younger wife. They proceed to tie them up, beating the husband, and raping the wife before his eyes. The scene took three days to work out, a luxury seldom experienced on a film set. In that time, they barely rolled film, but merely explored the possibilities. When Kubrick asked McDowell if he could dance, McDowell obliged and began to prance around the space while humming Singing in the Rain. Inspired, Kubrick picked up the phone, ordered Warner Brothers to procure the rights to the iconic Gene Kelly song, and proceeded to shoot the rape scene with this exciting new direction in mind. As McDowell performed the repugnant deed while singing one of the happiest songs ever written, Kubrick knew he had found it. As is so often the case with Kubrick's films, his patience and exploration paid off, and resulted in a moment 
that will remain forever burned in the minds of moviegoers the world over. Improvisation that he knew uh, completely dominated the scene and saved it and made it mm. interesting and gave it a satirical, you know, and, and funny tinge to it. Dancing and singing in the rain. A Clockwork Orange has these wonderful long tracking shots. Author Stuart Y. McDougall. Often he'll start with a close-up, and then he'll pull way back, because he does in that theater scene where we see the, the ornamentation above the stage, and then he pulls way back. And then he only cuts to a close-up when we have the, uh, the, the Druk. He's challenging, uh, pull out his uh, switchblade and snap it. You know, it's a beautiful shot. That's one of those shots you don't forget. Uh, but he's always pulling back, or he'll start long and he'll move in close. Uh, similarly, you can see him experimenting with light in A Clockwork Orange, all those rooms that are lit by the uh, natural lighting of the room, the, the lights from the ceiling or the standing lights or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. That really leads right into Barry Lyndon and the wonderful experimentation he does with natural light there where he has all those scenes set by candlelight. You know, it's fascinating to look at his work and to see him developing and changing and trying out new things and going back to uh, preoccupations he's had before. Author Peter Kramer. There are more precise references that you can see. I mean, a lot of people have pointed out that the beginning of Clockwork uh, uh, Orange is a, is a huge close-up of someone directly staring at the camera. And, of course, that's the ending of 2001. Mm. So a lot of people have been tempted to say that, obviously, there must be some connection here. The star child is in this very ambiguous position at the end of 2001. A lot of people, as I try to explain in my book, have, have really seen it as, as a moment of, of hope. But a lot of other people, especially critics and especially academic critics, have seen it almost as a, as a threat at the end. Mm. So the question is, what, what does the star child do next? Um, and uh, that's, of course, what Clark asks at the end of the novel. Yeah. Uh, more or less directly, he says, you know, uh, he will think of something, but we don't know what it is. And uh, this question, of course, is also the beginning of the novel, The Clockwork Orange, which starts with what's it going to be then, A, mm. uh, a question that Alex and his droogs ask themselves about how they're going to spend the evening. Uh, Kubik dropped that line from the film, but he, he, he keeps that close up. So we have the close-up at the beginning of Clockwork Orange echoing the close-up at the end uh, of uh, 2001. And in both cases, someone is staring directly at, at the camera and therefore at the audience. So it's a real challenge at the end. 
uh, of 2001 and at the beginning of Clockwork Orange. And there are many more connections you can make. I mean, I'm, I've been concentrating on the connections between Dr. Strangelove 2001 and Clockwork Orange, but you're absolutely right that you could make similarly, you could make lots of connections between the other Kubrick films. And uh, sometimes it's quite eerie. Sometimes it's quite eerie yeah. how certain things recur 20, 25 years later, uh -huh. uh, and it almost he's responding to something he's done before uh, and maybe changes it or elaborates it in some way. Perhaps the primary connection between A Clockwork Orange and Kubrick's other works can be felt in the tone of the film. That tone is one of playful ambiguity. What does Kubrick truly think of Alex's monstrosity? For certain audiences and critics, the most uncomfortable aspect of the film might have been its refusal to moralize its lead character. Author Peter Kramer. One of the ways in which Kubrick explains some of his films is to say, I don't want to give answers, I want to pose questions. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those questions have to do with you know, what he explicitly called the duality of man, in a line from Full Metal Jacket. But nevertheless, it's absolutely clear that Kubrick pushes different aspects of uh, human character, as it were, in the same person, and, and is willing to explore the contradictions between them. And you're absolutely right that with Alex in, in Talkback Orange, that's the most uncomfortable encounter mm -hmm. uh, that we can have with a character. Um, but I would certainly say that Kubrick, especially in Talkback Orange, wanted to confront the audience with its own uh, potential for extreme brutality and extreme carelessness with regards to uh, uh, other people's well-being. Uh, but that wasn't meant to be celebrated. That was meant to make the audience extremely uncomfortable with themselves. Author of Stanley Kubrick, Seven Films Analyzed, Randy Rasmussen. Even on A Clockwork Orange, which ends on a viciously ironic note that, you know, Alex reborn into his worst selfish self uh, is now accommodated with the state. I mean, the state actually returns Alex to his his worst self in order to promote its own political interest. So it's a horrible sort of marriage of convenience between these two. And yet there is that one scene where Alex shows some compassion for the tramp and gives him his last few coins, which I think if that's not in the book, but that moment is destroyed because of other circumstances and, and Kubrick is always aware of complications, hmm. whether it's good things happening and get complicated and unraveled by other circumstances or bad things that are happening and somehow get unraveled. Managing editor of the Film and Philosophy Journal, Professor Daniel Shaw. Little Alex is a moral monster. There's mm -hmm. no question about it. His ability to uh, engage in ultraviolence without batting an eye is a, a scary potential. But it is the potential of any human being who is free. And uh, robbing him of that potential with the Ludovico treatment, I think, is depicted as more inhumane than anything that Alex does at the beginning of the film. I find uh, A Clockwork Orange to be one of his most life-affirming films, despite its controversial uh, subject matter. I think the, uh, the ending celebrates Alex's return to form. Uh, it celebrates his uh, recovering his ability to engage in evil acts. 
and it celebrates it because uh, human freedom is only bought at the price of the potential for human evil. The value of human freedom in that film is affirmed in the face of its greatest challenge. That somebody like Alex must be possible in order to have the freedom that makes human beings human. Film professor R. Barton Palmer. What the film does is explore the discontents of a society in which the enlightenment values of the sovereign self uh, and the notion of that freedom from compulsion to be whatever um, uh, offer themselves as as problems to be solved complexly and paradoxically in some kind of humanist fashion so that um, what what the state eventually um, winds up doing in order to serve Alex, very enlightenment idea that the state exists to serve us rather than the other way around, uh, is by transforming him into someone who is uh, now the model good citizen. You get you get something like the the totalitarian idea of of the individual as uh, eminently malleable. Uh, in response to state power and the image the state has uh, of of the proper citizen, at the same time there's there's this notion of the, the dehumanization that goes on as part of the process, mm-hmm. and and there is no solution to that. I mean, the enlightenment notion that the the benevolent state that gives us uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, has difficulty in dealing with people who say screw you to that and pursue their own agendas to the harm of others. What do you do with people that do that? Do you mm-hmm. uh, do you do you do you use the power of the state to compel them to be other than they are? But if you do that, isn't that in a sense destroying the very value that the post enlightenment state is supposed to support? And, and of course, that's all in Burgess. But in in many ways, I think it's more effectively presented in the film because we are so disconnected from the characters, the film becomes more exploration of ideas. Yeah. It's the ideas that are offensive in that film, not so much the sex and violence. Right, right, right. It's the image of society and the trap that society finds itself in that I think is so, so interesting. Author Peter Kramer. Some people made the argument that humanity, each individual is innocent when born, and then is distorted into something potentially evil by society. Right. And Kubik certainly said that he disagreed with this, and that he saw it the other way around, that the society was, was shaped by the, the, the potential for violence and the, the violent impulses that each human being brought into society. Mm. And that society could not help but reflect that aspect of human nature, as it were. But he didn't see that cynically or defeat, in a defeatist way. He thought that once you acknowledge that, you can deal with it. Mm-hmm. So his idea was not that we can excuse state violence. And let's not forget that Kubrick was Jewish and that Kubrick was uh, um, more or less directly. I mean, there's an interesting book by Jeffrey Cox, which is very extreme in this article. Wolf at the Door, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it makes uh, a case, at least intermittently, that Kubrick certainly was interested in the Holocaust 
as a key moment in 20th century history, um, and that his Jewishness had something to do with that. Uh, his intention, as far as I can see, was to to show how brutal um, organizations can be, whether it's the army and Palace of Glory and Full Metal Jackets, uh, or whether it's the, the nuclear establishment and government in, in, in Dr. Strangelove, uh, or whether it's a, a gang of youth and a, a sort of uh, authoritarian government in, in, in Clockwork Orange. He certainly was interested in how uh, groups of people organizing themselves at, at whatever level, uh, you know, whether it's four people or a whole nation or the whole world in some ways in, in Dr. Strangelove. It's the whole world that buys into an extraordinary destructive system he certainly was interested in exploring that, yeah. but I think the idea is once you have explored it, you might be able to do something about it. Mm -hmm. So human nature is not something that is fate, uh, that, 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 that determines our fate. Human nature does not determine our fate or the fate of our societies. But once we acknowledge certain aspects of human nature, we can then deal with it in a humane way, as it were, yeah. at the level of individuals and at the level of, of groups or states or the world as a whole. Acclaimed cartoonist and writer, Tim Kreider. He's not particularly optimistic about human nature. I, I think he would argue he was realistic. Mm -hmm. um, and that he issued the kind of sentimentality um, that uh, most other artists um, succumb to when they deal with human beings. Yeah. Uh, but he's an optimist in that he believed in art. <clears throat> you know, I mean, he believed in the power of uh, his chosen medium. Author, Stuart Y. McDougall. I, I, Clockwork may be the clearest statement of his views uh, uh -huh. and the Ludovico treatment, which is, you know, taking Ludwig van Beethoven and twisting, putting him, twisting him on his head. Um, it's interesting, too, though, in that movie where he's showing us the uh, corrosive effects of power and really the fascistic state that's, that's trying to um, cure this young man, what does he make him do? He makes him watch movies mm. with his eyes wide open. Mm. Uh, and there he sits uh, doing what we've just been doing for the last, what, 45 minutes. Uh, we have had the option of blinking or turning away from the violence, but he doesn't have that. So it's a very metafictional moment in the film. It's wonderful that is that is part of this cure. Uh, he has his protagonist watch movies and watch violent movies and watch movies where Beethoven is uh, on the soundtrack. <laughs> you know, it's wonderful. Uh, people sometimes say uh, that Kubrick doesn't have a sense of humor, but, you know, there it is. Actor Malcolm McDowell. And now people, the audiences that see it now, laugh, laugh, laugh. They see that we made a black comedy. For some... The humor in A Clockwork Orange wasn't the only aspect of the film they misunderstood. In fact, controversy surrounded the property even before the cameras rolled. Author, Stuart Y. McDougall. When Terry Southern owned the property, he did a screenplay and submitted it to the board, and the board said, uh, oh, well, we know this novel, and there, there's no way you can make any movie based on this. It's mm. not going to pass our board. And in fact, it did pass. Uh, Kubrick's version did pass, but there were considerable protests by um, conservative groups in Great Britain, uh, religious groups, and similarly in the United States. In the United States, he withdrew it for about 30 days. 
um, edited out a few seconds of footage and went from an X rating to an R rating. Hmm. Um, and oddly enough, both of them were then in release after that, both versions. And there's a very slight difference. While American audiences were generally savvy to the satirical bent of the film, certain watchdogs in England were less forgiving, particularly when supposed copycat acts of violence began to erupt in the wake of the film's release. Most notable was an incident involving a 16-year-old boy named Richard Palmer, who went to trial after murdering a tramp. The media dubbed him the Clockwork Orange Boy, as he mentioned he was inspired by the escapades of Alex and his droogs. The media failed to mention that he had only read the book and had not yet viewed the film. Coupling these incidents with the threats against he and his family, Kubrick made the unprecedented decision to pull his film from release in UK theaters. There were so many newspaper articles in Great Britain about copycat violence. Mm-hmm. Every time there was a violent act, it was being attributed to a clockwork orange. And he said to Warner Brothers, forget it, we're just going to withdraw. You know, I'm, I'm not interested in this, we're going to withdraw it. So the, the first real criticism, or the, or the strongest criticism of it, was not so much for its depiction of sexual acts, but for what people thought was uh, a violence that was being picked up and imitated by young people. Kubrick's longtime assistant, Tony Fruin. Now, if you go back to the early 70s, there was a chap over here called Lord Longford, mm. who was, uh, who was uh, I guess, a bit batty. But at the time, he, um, he was quite an influential person. And he sort of, and there was another woman called Mary Whitehouse, who ran something called the Viewers and Listeners Association. And um, the two ended up as um, bedmates, not literally, but um, because they both um, saw, they said, well, you know, there's a lot of violence in society now. I wonder what's causing it. Ah, we know what's causing it. It's violence in the media. You know, it's violent films, violent television. Um, these uh, these films and TV programs are having a bad effect on people, and um, people watch them and then go out and commit crimes, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, simple minds demand simple solutions, right? So if you stop violence on TV and violence in films, I mean, everything will be okay. Um, Well, they were sort of caught with their pants down with Sam Peckinpah's film and Straw Dogs, but then Clockwork Orange came along. And they said, oh, well, this is precisely the sort of film that's hastening the demise of society that is um, promoting violent crimes. And what would happen is some, you know, fly guy would be in court for, you know, mugging an old lady or something, and he'd get up in court and say, oh, well, you know, um, I was a law-abiding citizen until I saw that film Clockwork Orange. That film Clockwork Orange made me do it, right? (laughs) Yes. And then Lord Longford and Mary Whitehouse would point to this individual and say, see... What we've been saying all these years is true. And so they all settled on um, Clockwork Orange. You know, here was this 
American director living in uh, in England, making these violent films that were destroying society. And I mean, it was just crazy and insane. And after a while, Stanley thought, well, you know, stop this. Um, and um, got to ask Warner Brothers to, to withdraw its distribution in this country. A Clockwork Orange was Kubrick's first film with Warner Brothers. They proved they were eager to play a role in the Kubrick legacy by accepting his request to pull his film from UK theaters. This gesture clearly endeared Kubrick to the studio, as he remained loyal to Warner Brothers for the remainder of his career. I think Alex probably would have ended up as a, you know, a highly successful guy in whatever mm. it is he did, simply because he had this sort of sense of this love of life. I never got it that he was really into drugs. You know, of course he was, but but you know, with the laced milk and all that, he wouldn't have ended up on in a gutter. You know, uh, to me, he would he would have been okay. The speculation remains. Did Alex continue on the ultra-violent path? Or did he find a way to transform himself into a respectable adult? The life that A Clockwork Orange has enjoyed in the years since its initial release, however, is unquestionable. Everything from novels to popular songs to TV shows have been heavily influenced by the film. Some of our greatest cinematic villains of recent years carry the torch for McDowell's powerhouse work. The film marked the first wave of intense investigations into the connections between real-life violence and its on-screen counterparts. Like all of Kubrick's films, the legacy of A Clockwork Orange will always be reflected in popular culture and society at large, as its themes continue to resonate and mutate with the changing times. For me, Clockwork Orange continues to amaze and fascinate. The issues it raises, the way those issues are treated. Um, well, as Ezra Pound once said, poetry is news that remains news. And I think mm. you could say the same thing about A Clockwork Orange. It's news that remains news. What is the price of freedom, and what is the cost when those freedoms are compromised? Kubrick looked to the near future when he explored those ideas through the character of Alex in A Clockwork Orange. But for his next film, he would look to the past to revisit many of these same themes, and create another vivid portrait of a man whose individuality is suffocated by an oppressive society. <laughs> 